Well, good morning. It's uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Merry Christmas. Man, I just love the organized chaos with all the kids. The Lord is so good. What an exciting time for us. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Micah chapter 6. All right, and is everybody's quieting down? You're not ready, buddy? Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Let, let, let's pray. <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for our children that can proclaim your praises. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time together as a family. Thank you for this season of remembering and rejoicing and watching and waiting that you are coming back to make all things new. Lord, I pray for the next 20 minutes, can you help us to focus? Can you help us to listen? Can you help us to learn and help us to be obedient to your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to try to make it 25 minutes, okay? Let's see how we do here, starting now. So we're in Micah chapter 6, so a real quick recap of Micah for the kids that are with us here. So Micah begins telling God's people that God is going to come and judge them because they've not been listening to God. They've rebelled against His covenant. They've rebelled against His commands. They've rejected um, His word. And so, despite their rebellion, God, through the prophet Micah, gives them a word of hope, saying, look, I'm not going to completely abandon you, but I'm going to send a Messiah, and He's going to be king, and He's going to rule and reign and restore and make all things new, and He's going to rescue you. And so, and so as a result of this king coming, there is going to be peace. And so that's so far in Micah. But in Micah chapter 6, we kind of come back to this theme of, of judgment. And really what we see is we see a picture of a courtroom where God is judging his people and he brings his, uh, his case against his people. And God allows His people to kind of respond and kind of answer the questions He's giving them to give them a defense of their actions. But the problem is no matter what they say, no matter what they do, they are guilty and there's no defense for their actions, which means their only hope is for God to act on their behalf and showing them mercy. Now, kids, here's an illustration. Here's what's going on in, in chapter 6. Listen to me, okay? Everybody, eyes on me. Let's focus. This is just for you, kids. Mommy and daddy told you not to play with a ball inside the house. Where are you supposed to play with balls? Outside the house. That's their rule. And they've repeatedly told you not to play with a ball inside the house. And what did you do? You ended up playing with a ball inside the house. And as a result of playing with this ball inside the house... You broke this precious lamp that was your great, 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 great grandmother's lamp. And that lamp has been passed on from generations to generations. So what do you do? You just broke the lamp. And your mom saw you and your dad saw you break the lamp. So you can't say, I did not do it. Because they literally saw you playing with the ball inside. And you broke the lamp. And now 
They're sitting you on the couch and they're confronting you. Now you can just imagine what they're going to say. And this is what's happening in our text. God had told them what to do. They did not listen. And God says, sit down. Let me bring my case against you. Kids, you guys understand what's going on? All right, let's look at, let's look at verse 1. Micah, verse 1, it says this. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit. You mountains and enduring fountains of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people, and He will argue against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered, and what happened from the Achaia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So right now, what's going on is the Lord is confronting them because of their sins. And he begins to question them by, by announcing all the good things he has done for them. And so he mentions the most important things that he's done for them in their history. Basically, God is saying like, don't you remember how I delivered you out of Egypt? Your parents were once slaves and I took you up and I displayed my glory and my majesty for all to see. And when Pharaoh's army chased after you, did I did not deliver you from the Red Sea? Did I not establish a covenant with you and gave you a law? Did I not give you leaders where Moses revealed to you the law? Aaron was supposed to teach you the law. Miriam was supposed to help you sing the law. And when your enemies wanted to hurt you, did I not deliver you when you walked around in the wilderness? Did I not put clothes on you? Did I not put food in your bellies and water to drink? Did I not provide for you? Was that not enough? And then he says, why did I do all these things? Look at the end of verse 5. So that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So in other words, what God is doing, let's go back to kids. What did you just do? You, you broke the lamp, and now you're sitting on the couch, and mom and dad is saying, did we not tell you not to play with a ball? Have we not given you all the toys in the world to play with? Do you not have a trampoline outside and a swing set outside for you to play? Do we not give you clothes and, and a room, a roof over your head and food in your belly? Do we not provide for you and do all these wonderful things? Like how hard is it for you to listen to our one rule? Do not play with the ball inside the house. That's what God is telling his people. Like look at what I've done for you. So now, the people, after God questions them, now, what are the people supposed to do when God tells all these things? God confronts them, and now God gives them a chance to answer Him. And when you're confronted and you know you're guilty, what's your answer supposed to be? God, you've done everything for us. God, we're sorry. We really should have listened. God, can you forgive us? But that's not what they say. Look at what they say in verse 6. This is the people responding to God's questions. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? 
Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? See, what's happening is instead of answering God's question saying, yeah, God, you did everything for us. God, we're really sorry. Instead of answering God's questions, they begin to ask their own questions. Because here's the thing. If they answer God's question, they have to admit that they are guilty, that they are wrong. And instead of admitting that they're guilty, instead of admitting that they were wrong, they try to self-justify and asking God questions. In other words, what they're telling God is they're rolling their eyes as God is talking to them and saying, okay, God, what's going to make you happy? Like, what's going to fix this? Do you need us to bring more sacrifices? Do you need us to bring us more offering? Will that make you happy? Will that get you off our backs? Like, like will, will, would a year old calf be enough? Would a thousand rams be enough? Would our children be sacrificed to you? Would that be enough? And the people thought they were smart and, and, and asking their own questions, but in reality, it was really foolish. It's other words, like, your parents, listen to me, kids, your parents sitting you down on the couch are saying, have I not done everything for you? And instead of saying, yes, mom, yes, dad, you have done everything for us. I, I, we're, we're really sorry. We shouldn't have done it. We should have listened to you. You roll your eyes and say, okay, can, can we, what will make you just stop talking to me right now? Like, that's what the people are doing. Like, like, like what's going to fix this lamp? Like, like, do you want to take all of my, all my savings account? Do you want to ground me for a whole year? Do you want to make me do extra chores? Can we just stop talking about this and just give me the list of things to do? Is that a good response? What do you think mommy and daddy would do if, if you did that? Don't answer. I know what I would do. That's not my son. I, that was very foolish. And look at how God responds to their question in verse 8. He says, Mankind, He has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, here's what God is doing. In His response... He is, them, he is challenging them to say, look, stop uh, engaging me with these empty actions just to get me off your backs. But what I want you to do is I want you to engage me with your heart. And what we need to understand is when, when God gives them this list, He's not giving them a list of things that they need to do in, in, in a sense, a, a checklist. If you do this, check. If you do this, check. If you do this, check. I'll get off your back. No, what he is doing this, he is telling them, I want you to engage with your heart, and I want you to walk with me by faith. You see, one of the things we need to understand is throughout the Bible, God does not require works, but rather require faith that plays itself out and works. For example, when God gave the people uh, the law, the Ten Commandments, we look at those Ten Commandments and we say, yes, the Ten Commandments is all about works. And in a sense it is, but what must go before works is faith. Because you need to believe, first of all, that God is God, and He is God alone, that He is good, He's merciful and kind, and He's given me this law for my own good to protect me, to provide for me. 
And so what God is saying, is he's not saying, here's a list of what I want you to do. Once you do that list, come back. He says, I want you to walk with me with faith. I want you to trust me. I want you to engage me with your heart to believe that I am a good, merciful, kind God. And this is what I want you to do. And so God says, I've told you in verse 8 what is good, what I require to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He is saying, basically God is saying is, I'm not looking for people who practice religious activities. I want people to love me because they love me and they want to be like me. Now I'm going to give you three things that God's telling his people to do. And here's what it's not. It's not a checklist. Does everybody understand what a checklist is? Okay, it's not a checklist. God wants you to do these three things because these things are not just something that you check off, but these things, when you do these things, you're reflecting what God is like. And in a sense, what God is telling you is, when you walk with me, I want you to reflect me. I want you to be like me. So the three things, here's the first one, if you're taking notes. To reflect God, we need to act justly. We need to act justly. Man, we're doing good on time. Twelve minutes and halfway through. Now, when we think about act justly, you're like, what in the world does that mean? There's three words that, that really comes to mind to act justly. The first one is integrity. Integrity, the second one is honesty, and the third one is having a concern for the weak. Now, some of you are like, what does integrity mean? Okay, real quick, easy explanation. You ask your parents for a piece of candy, and what do your parents say? Yes, but only take, only take one. They're in the living room, the candy jar is in the kitchen. They can't see you, but they're trusting you're only going to take one. So what are you going to do? Integrity is saying, I'm going to do the right thing even though no one can see me. I'm going to act in integrity and take only one piece of candy, even though technically I might grab two and I'll never be caught. That's dishonest. That's integrity, is doing the right thing when no one's watching. Honesty is not telling lies. And the last one is having a concern for the weak. Now, if you think about it, who, who acts with integrity, who's always honest, and who's always concerned for the weak? Yeah, that is what God is like. If you think about it, here's one th- there, here, there's, God can do everything, but there's one thing that God can never do. It's impossible for God to do, and that is for God to lie. Like God cannot lie because it goes against His nature. God is truthful. He is the truth. He is honest. And God is, He acts always with integrity, he always acts with honesty. And guess what? God always cares about the weak. Like if you think about it, the story of the Bible talks about God choosing a people for Himself. And you know who God chooses? The strong, the smartest. No, who does God choose for Himself? The weak, the lowliest. The outcasts, the ones that nobody wants, these are the ones that God chooses. And so when God is saying, I want you to act justly, He's saying, I want you to act like me because that's who I am. I am truth. And so what, I want, what do I want you to do? I want you to act truthful, to walk in truth. I want you to have a concern for the weak because that's who I have a concern for. And the reason why God told them to act justly 
It's because the people of God did the complete opposite. And if you think about it, if you're a Christian, you have received God's justice. God's justice was satisfied on the cross when Jesus died in your place. And because of Jesus dying in your place by faith, you've been declared righteous. We call that you've been justified. And God accepts you because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so when you're acting justly, you're showing the world what God's justice is like. That's been shown on the cross of Jesus Christ. The second one, if you're taking notes, God wants you to act justly. The second one, if you're taking notes, is this, to love faithfulness. We love faithfulness. Now, in some of your translations, in some of your Bibles, uh, you have another word. Does anybody have another word other than faithfulness in their Bible? It's mercy. Some say mercy. So, here's what the Hebrew word is translating, okay? To love faithfulness, the best Hebrew word translation is a loyal love that contains mercy. It's a loyal love that contains mercy. Think about that. Who continually shows loyal love that shows mercy? God does. Like God is loyal and faithful to His people, and He continually shows them mercy. Like how many times does, have the people rebelled against God? Almost all the time. And what does God do? He puts up with them. He's patient with them. He loves them. He's faithful in His covenant towards them. He doesn't give them what they deserve, but rather He continually shows them mercy. And when we think about the loyal love that contains mercy, we think about love, grace, and forgiveness. And think about this. How did God show us loyal love that contains mercy? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Like God did not give us what we deserve. We all deserve to die for our actions. But instead Jesus died in our place and offered us forgiveness. And so when we act in loyal love that contains mercy, we're showing the world what God is like. The last one is this. If you're taking notes, is to walk humbly with God. The meaning of the word to walk humbly, in a sense, is, is lowly. Now, when we think of the word lowly, do we think of, of, of somebody strong or somebody weak? Weak. We think of somebody weak and insignificant, and so the, the word lowly is kind of negative. Like, who? anybody wants to be lowly? And yet, the opposite of lowly is selfish pride. And let me ask you this. You all know the answer. Do you know who described himself as humble and lowly? Jesus did. Now, here's an extra question. Do you know where that is in the Bible? Matthew 11. Somebody, let's look at Matthew 11, 28, 29. Let's quickly look at it together. Raise your hand if you have it, kids. All right, we're ready. Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly or gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. 
Jesus is lowly. Jesus is humble. So in a sense, when God says, I want you to walk humbly before me, he's saying, I want you to walk like Jesus walked. If you think about this, when Jesus came to earth, where was Jesus born? Anybody know the answer? Bethlehem. Is Bethlehem a big city or a very small podunk town? A small podunk town. Was Jesus born um, in a fancy hotel, in a palace, or in a stable? Was Jesus laid in a fancy crib, the crib 3000, or in a manger, a feeding trough? A manger. Think about that. All of that describes humble, lowly, insignificant. That's where Jesus was born. And then Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, he humbled himself to the will of his Father by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does it mean to walk humbly with God? It means to walk like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He put himself under the authority of his Father. He submitted to the Father's will and did everything the Father wanted him to do. And his main purpose was to glorify God. And so when God says, I want you to walk humbly with me, that means I want you to put yourself under my authority. I want you to obey me. And I want you to listen to what I have to say. And I want you to show the world what I am like. That I'm a good father. And this is what God tells him. So let's get back to our analogy, kids. You, what did you do? You broke the lamp. Mom and dad says, have we not done everything for you? And the answer is, yeah, you've done everything. So now comes the real point. What happens when you break the lamp? Now you're waiting for your parents to tell them what your punishment is going to be. Time. How many years of timeouts? Spanking. A spanking. I don't know if we can announce it in public. <laughs> Extra chores. Your only hope is for mommy and daddy to show you mercy. Now let's look at verse 13 to 16. As a result, I've begun to struck you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. There will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save. And what do you save I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes but do not drink the wine. The, state, the, sta the statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's resident an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. In other words, what God is telling his people is because you've not listened, you will be rightfully punished because of your foolish actions. I know most of us don't want our parents to punish us, but when God punishes us, when our parents punish us, they punish us. Why? Because they love us. They want to teach us what it means to listen to them and to submit to them and to walk with them. 
And that's what God is rightfully doing. He's punishing them for their foolish actions because they're refusing to walk with Him. He's trying to show them how foolish their ways are, that when you don't follow Him, the only thing that you find is destruction. Now, we're, we're almost done here. Now we're going to fast forward in the book of Malachi because their end does not end with destruction. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 18. It says this, chapter 7, verse 18. This is the end of the book of, of, of Micah. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in what? Faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And you will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. So in other words, what God is saying through the prophet Micah is, I'm going to punish you rightfully because that's what you deserve. But your punishment is not going to end in punishment. Because I'm going to forgive you at the end. Basically, a long story short, for God to forgive them, He has to act on their behalf. And He shows them mercy by not killing them. Just like your mom and dad is not killing you for breaking that lamp. Should you be killed for that? Yeah, technically you should because you rebelled. And you're like, I'm as good as dead. And even though they punish you, that relationship does not end in punishment because what happens after the punishment? They say, come, I love you. It's not about the lamp. It's about having a relationship with you as you come under our authority, as you know that we love you. So what do we learn from this story? First thing is this. If we truly believe in God, we should walk like God. That means we should obey God and we should reflect God. If God is just, what should we do? We should act justly. If God is merciful, what should we show? We should show mercy. If God is loving, what must we do? We must be loving. And here's some advice for you kids and adults. When you are caught in your sins, in other words, when you are guilty... It is our human nature to self-justify and come up with excuses. That is a foolish action. It will only lead to condemnation. Somewhere else in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, there's this court scene where all of us are standing before God and He's the ultimate judge. And the problem is all of us are guilty. We have no defense. And the only thing we're waiting for is God to pronounce our sentence. And we know the sentence because He's already told us the sentence of defying God is death. What is our only hope? Our only hope is for God to somehow act and for God to not declare us guilty. But the problem is, how can God not declare us guilty? Because we are guilty and God is a good judge. For Him to say we're not guilty is for Him to be a bad judge. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of the court scene, and we're waiting for the judge to pronounce his sentence, Jesus walks into the court scene. He's the son of the judge. And he interrupts in a sense, and he says, if I live a life they could not live, and if I died the death and take the punishment they were all supposed to face, will that satisfy your judgment? And the judge says, 
Yes. And I will justify all of those who believe and trust in what my son has accomplished for them on the cross. They will be justified. In other words, they will be declared righteous as if they have never sinned. And Paul says in Romans 3.26, God presented him at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is why Jesus came. He was, he, came to, he was born to die. And that's the precious gift we have in Jesus. So that we can be justified. We can be declared innocent before God. And God can accept us. So the question I have for you is this. Do you believe this? And if you do, are you living like you believe this? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have shown us mercy through your son, Jesus. That your son has acted on our behalf and lived the life we could not live and died the death we were all supposed to die. And that you are, have acted justly, you have loved us faithfully and showing us mercy.